coming up on this episode. So, uh, a problem in the brain can impact the eye. A problem in the eye can denote a problem in the brain. Uh, surgery is the only treatment for cataracts. Mm. If if I'm going to develop a, an eye drop which is going to dissolve cataract, just putting drops dissolve cataracts, I'll get the Nobel Prize. <laughs> the next Nobel Prize winner. Yeah. But they may see some black patches, stationary patches, while they see around. Those are called as visual field defects. And that really requires investigation. The following is a podcast with Dr. Pranesh, an eye doctor, or in other words, an ophthalmologist. He's also a medical educator who is currently working as a clinical teaching fellow at Moorfields Eye Hospital in London. He's deeply passionate about teaching and runs a YouTube channel under his name, where he strives to provide quality content for eye care professionals and medical students across the globe. In this episode, we talk about the essentials of eye care and vision changes that should prompt us to get expert help. We also cover dry eyes, myopia, whether we can stop or reverse it, and the benefits and drawbacks of glasses and contacts. Lastly, we cover cataracts and whether we can prevent them. Plus, we go over a bunch of misconceptions such as Blu-ray glasses, the correct way of putting eye drops, and whether eating carrots can actually make your vision better. Enjoy. I want to thank Dr. Pranesh for being here with us today. Uh, it's a true honor and a true pleasure. Uh, I, I met you about two weeks ago when we came uh, at Moorfield here at the hospital for a teaching session. And you started teaching, and the first thing you brought up was your website. <laughs> and then you showed your YouTube channel, and then you showed all the resources you had built, and then you showed, and I was overwhelmed. And then you got your iPad out and you started teaching with notability. I was like, wow. This guy's a good teacher. <laughs> and that's when I understood, you know, the difference between someone who's excellent at teaching and someone who's who's remained with the old kind of PowerPoint slides. And that's why we're doing this today. We're going to do this in a two-part podcast. It's going to be first part, we're going to talk about eye care. And then we're going to move to the second part. We'll talk a bit, about, a bit about teaching. So how are you today? Thank you so much, Andres. I'm I'm doing brilliant. Uh, thanks for having me today here. And, and it's really inspiring to see your work. Uh, I'm really honored to be a part of this show. Thank you so much. So I think let's begin with um, eye exams. What are eye exams? When should people go have eye exams? Is there a difference in the ages and children and older people? And what about diseases as well? Like if you have diabetes or something else? Great. So eyes have pretty important structure. I mean, we see with the eyes, actually. And uh, I think every one of us should get an eye exam, irrespective of the age. So we start to get the eyes examined as, as young as like from one year, one year of age, all the way up to, you know, 80s or 90s, uh, because you have different diseases affecting uh, the different age groups. Certain diseases are quite specific for that age. So that's why we need to have an eye examination for sure. And you need to find the solutions for certain uh, problems at a very young age and unless we correct that what happens is that it, it it remains unsolved and later what happens even when you're going to give a treatment for that particular problem it won't get corrected the eyes become lazy hmm. so that's why some patients some adults have this weaker eye because they might not have got their their refractory errors corrected they might need a glass but they might not have worn the glass for a long time during their childhood so after a certain period of time, they kind of lose their ability. It's quite an interesting uh, a disease or a, or a concept to understand. It's like you have these two eyes and the two eyes, when they're growing, the eyes should be registered by the brain. Yeah. So I often use the analogy that uh, we have two guys trying to impress a girl. So yeah. there's a love triangle happening there. And one of the guys should be giving the right signals to the brain. Both should be giving the right signals. But what happens, unfortunately... One of them is not giving the right signals to the brain. So the brain is rejecting that eye. So why he's not giving a right signal? Because he might have a refractory error or because he may have a squint or a deviation. Yeah. The eyes are kind of deviated outside uh, or the eye could have some problem like a cataract at a very young age. So there is a period called as a critical period that is within five years of age, you need to correct that problem. Mm-hmm. When you don't correct that problem, what happens is that uh, the eyes lose their ability to, to correct by itself. 
So that's important, actually. So five years, I would say, is going to be the, the more important period. It's like, it's like getting married, right? Uh, it's like the honeymoon period. So you have to give the entire love to your wife within that particular amount of time. And uh, you cross that threshold, then it's yeah. very, you know, kind of difficult to get back the love from your wife. So, yeah. so it's important to kids, especially under the age of five, get them the first eye exam. Exactly. And when we say eye exam, I, th I know there's two types of things, two types of practitioners that have to do with the eyes. We've got the optometrists and the ophthalmologists. Do they do different eye tests? How does that work? Do you just go to a place where you get your prescription and that's where you do an eye exam? Yeah. So the way, uh, you know, it depends upon where you're from, actually. And, uh, you know, I'm from India and, and, and we have, uh, we don't have optometrists there. Uh, optometrists work in conjunction with the ophthalmologists. Mm -hmm. The basic difference is ophthalmologists are eye doctors. Mm -hmm. The optometrists are trained in eye examination, but they have not gone through a medical school. The same with the opticians as well. So opticians, optometrists, they have not been through the medical school. But ophthalmologists are doctors who are who have specialized in, in this eye. And ophthalmologists do surgeries, whereas the optometrists or opticians, they don't do the eye surgeries. That's going to be the difference. Uh, but here, of course, uh, the optometrists and opticians are going to be the first point of contact for the patients. So the patients or the public goes to them and, and they do the preliminary examination. For example, they take the vision. They do the refraction, which means they, they're going to put these glasses, check the power of the eye. Mm -hmm. uh, if there's any errors, they kind of correct it with glasses or contact lenses. And then if there are any other problems, diseases, which need some treatment, then they refer the patients to the ophthalmologist. So for people who are above five years old, above that critical period, for example, my age, let's say five to 25, mm -hmm. Uh, and then the other age group, even older people, more than 50 years old, when should they have eye exams? I would recommend every year. Every year? Every year. Every year for sure. There, is, there should not be any compromise on that. You can get it done from your optometrist or optician, but get your eyes checked every year. Uh, I would strongly recommend above 40 years of age especially, because above 40 years, you are at risk for uh, a disease called glaucoma, mm -hmm. which is going to... Uh, affect the eye nerve, the optic nerve, and that happens because of an increase in eye pressure. So you need to get your eye pressures checked after 40 years of age. And again, naturally, above 40 years of age, we are all prone to get more diseases, such as diabetes and hypertension, and they can affect the eyes as well. So we have to take care of that. So an annual screening of the eye is mandatory. That would be my suggestion. And what about um, certain red flags that if someone sees maybe a loss of vision or some people complain about desaturation of certain colors mm. in there if they notice something um what is it that they notice and that constitutes this to be a red flag and they should therefore get checked mm. and so the common ones and then what are the uncommon ones but serious ones okay. that we have to always keep an eye out and yeah. it's good for the public to know great question andreas uh, I think uh, patients or public should be aware of these red flags or these warning signs because uh, they can they can indicate towards a much serious disease. So they the patients when they have a problem, they have a disease, they it kind of manifests as as a symptom, uh, like like fever, for example. Uh, so the common symptoms uh, in the eyes uh, when it comes to these emergencies, I can classify into three aspects. One is going to be what we call as an acute red eye. When I mean acute red eye, when your eyes become red, you may or may not have pain. You may you may not have a poor vision. But any redness of the eye, that is a red flag. The second is going to be a sudden loss of vision. Mm -hmm. You lose the vision all of a sudden. It can be to a, even a minimal amount. That's okay. But you have a blurry vision, which is like sudden in onset or acute happens all of a sudden. Then that deserves uh, an, an early treatment or, or an examination. The third set is going to be uh, flashes and floaters. So just to kind of briefly tell what, what is what, when you have an acute red eye, it means that there could be some inflammation or there can be an, an increase in the eye pressures, which can manifest as an acute red eye. So an inflammation or, or some sort of infection um, or an increased eye pressures can manifest as acute red eye. The second is going to be the sudden loss of vision, which I said. Any bleeding in the eye or any sort of uh, lack of blood supply to the, to the parts of the eye or even some serious conditions such as stroke in the brain can manifest a sudden loss of vision. Mm. The third one is going to be flashes and floaters. 
kind of very interesting uh, cluster of symptoms. And then they could indicate a detachment of the retina or, or back of the eye. Mm -hmm. So all these three important uh, syndromes or, or the cluster of symptoms uh, are going to be the red flags. These are quite common ones. Again, the uncommon ones. Uh, so like you said, some patients are smart enough to, to detect it. Some might think that they're not seeing the colors really well. Uh, sometimes a red appears like an orange in one of the eyes. Uh, which is which is quite unusual presentation. Uh, so in practice, I've not seen many patients coming up with that. But they could sense. Some patients could not see the colors really well all of a sudden. So this color vision deficiency, which is which is something new, not really from a from childhood, something new, that could indicate an optic nerve problem. That's one thing. And uh, another thing which patients might come up with is going to be this sort of a field defect. I mean, what we see is going to be the visual field. Some patients don't really have any problem with reading or looking straight ahead, but they may see some black patches, stationary patches while they see around. Those are called as visual field defects. And that really requires investigation. Sometimes a problem in the brain can cause these field defects, actually. So these are the, going to be the uncommon presentations, but patients, if they find it, they have to report to the optician optometrist as early as possible. Uh, then they can be referred to the ophthalmologist earlier. I think an important one you mentioned, which is um, not given a lot of attention, is that stroke can present with loss of vision. Yeah. And can it be the only symptom? It could be. It could be. The stroke mm, in the brain uh, can itself present as, as loss of vision. Uh, sometimes patient can have the loss of vision first, which can then lead on to a stroke in the brain. Then they can manifest like a complete uh, weakness on one side, the typical signs and symptoms of stroke. So it can go either way. Mm. So uh, a problem in the brain can impact the eye. A problem in the eye can denote a problem in the brain. So that's why time is of essence. Whenever yes. you have uh some sort of vision loss. Yes. I think it's important to put that down. So I think it would be a good point now, maybe to use the props that, <laughs> that you so kindly brought, uh, to maybe give a very short introduction about the structure of the eye, the anatomy of the eye, in other words, and then we can start from the, from the front of the eye moving to backwards, and then we can talk a bit about some misconceptions uh, in eye care. Great, thank you for that. So. As you can see, this is going to be the eye. I'm not going to use this prop in its entirety, but it just kind of shows the, the location of the eye. We've got, we got two eyes and we all know that. And the eye is kind of a comfortably stationed in this uh, bony space, what we call as orbit. Uh, you can see that this is going to be the eye and you can see here, this is going to be the, uh, the eye nerve or what was optic nerve. There we have these muscles which are kind of attaching to the eye and helps to move the eyeball. So I just want you the audience watching is to kind of imagine that you are you're going to be sitting in this room and imagine this you have a big room and you have a big ball in the room a big football uh, that ball is a living breathing ball and that room or or that house is called as the orbit orbit is what they call it. it's it's going to be the, just this bony part of the eye where the eye is sitting inside and the eyes are interestingly uh, positioned really well. It's like a couch potato. It kind of sits really well in that couch. And, and the couch is like the fat in the orbit. And you have these muscles kind of attaching to the eyes and helping the eye to stay there. Now, you can have, uh, like, like how we have the house, we have these windows, we have these doors. The eye also have these lids as well. So we have this house and the accessories. That's one part of the eye. Then we have the eyeball itself. So you can have diseases involving this house or you can have the diseases involving this eyeball uh, in particular. The diseases involving in, the, in this house could be some sort of a, like a lid bump uh, or you can have some sort of sty. We, we can discuss that later. That's going to be one of the things. Um, sometimes the eye muscles don't really work well. What happens? Patients do see some kind of two images. That is again an important symptom patients might come up with. Some certain intelligent patients do realize that they're not seeing one image, they're seeing two images. This double vision, again, could indicate a problem in the brain as well. Now, speaking about the eyeball, so you, I said you have a big eyeball in this room and, and, and that eyeball is going to be not a single layer. It's going to be like a concentric layers. Imagine there's a big football. You have another football inside and another football inside. So you get three footballs inside, yeah. so concentric layers. Uh, the outermost is what we call as the cornea and sclera. Uh, so, 
imagine I'm, I'm, I'm wearing a white coat. I'm not wearing one now, but imagine I'm wearing a white coat. Uh, the white coat is going to be open in front. The coat kind of covers all the way back. The front part of the white coat is covered by a glass shield, if you can imagine that. That glass shield is called as the cornea and the rest of the white coat is called the sclera. So this cornea and sclera is going to be the, the outermost layer which kind of protects the eye. Um, and the cornea has to be clear. The sclera is going to be the white part of the eye, but the cornea is going to be the clear part of the eye. So you need to have a good transparency of the cornea for the light rays to go back and fall on the retina, which we'll discuss in a minute. Now that's going to be the, the, the outermost structure. Uh, the inner one is going to be called as the uveal tract, uh, which includes the, the brown part, the colored part of the eyes. Some of you might have brown, gray, blue, the different colors, the exotic colors, what we have. So those are going to be the part of this uveal tract, right? And the last is going to be the retina. So it's, it's, it's kind of very important to understand that uh, the eyeball has these three layers and they have these very clear spaces within the eye. And you have a, one important structure called as a lens, which is just behind the colored part called as the iris. To be, uh, to put things simple or to keep things simple, the light ray should get into the cornea and it should go all the way and hit back at the retina. And from the retina, it has to go to the optic nerve, which is this nerve, and should go all the way to the brain. Mm -hmm. So the eye is connected to the brain. So eye is in fact a part of the brain. Mm. That's why any problem in the brain can be affected in the eye to be more specific on the retina or the back part of the eye. This is the anatomy in brief actually. Um, so the diseases can involve in, in any of these in the house or in the ball and different layers. So let's start with the outside of the eye. Um, I think a simple question would be, why do we have eyelids and why do we have to blink? So eyelids are essentially needed for us to close and open. We, it's kind of like a protection, right? We, without eyelids, our eyes will be exposed to a lot of dust particles outside. So we need to close the lids just to protect our eyes. That's going to be the first and most important mm -hmm. component. Secondly, uh, the eyes have these glands called as a meibomian glands. And these glands are going to secrete this oil. And this oil is important to let the tear on the eye surface to stay there. Imagine you have a big bowl of water and we are, we are pouring oil on the water. So the oil kind of stays there. The oil prevents the water from getting evaporated. The same thing happens. So these lids are going to give this oil which kind of stabilizes the tear film which is on the surface of the eye, including the cornea and the, and, and the white part. So when there's going to be a problem in these glands, when oil is not secreted properly, what happens? That's what happens. That's where you get into a dry eye disease, which is quite common these days because uh, one, one interesting clinical point is that we need to blink. You need to have a complete blink so that the glands of both the lids meet each other so that the oil is secreted. When you don't blink, for example, you keep on watching this screens for a long time, constant staring of the screens without blinking. You watch your favorite Netflix series and you are like glued to the screen like that. <laughs> You fail to blink. Uh, and that's what happens when you fail to blink, the oil is not expressed. When the oil is not expressed, your eyes become dry. So you need to have complete blinks. That's why, again, when you have this problem with these glands, the doctors or opticians or optometrists might ask you to uh, use hot water. Just give some hot compresses and you can give a lid massage to express out that oil. And the reason why you do that is because the oil can get clogged up. Exactly inside and that's why you sometimes you can see a little bump exactly what yeah. is that called the bump is called as a chalazion a chalazion uh, sometimes you have other bumps which are like painful bumps which you don't have to really massage because they're called a sty and they infect a different set of glands uh, but but the whole point is uh, you need to blink that's important number two you need to keep your lids very clean uh, poor hygiene of the lids or the eyelashes can can kind of attract infectious organisms just bacteria and that can cause these sty and other painful eye uh, or, or lid bumps. So let's focus a bit on that because that, that interests me a lot. When we say correct hygiene of the eye, could we go into some practical details? Great. So when, when do you have to do hygiene? Does everyone have to do it? Or do you do it when you have symptoms of dry eye? And could you talk a bit about what dry eye entails? So it feels like, I think it feels like grittiness in your eyes. Yeah. So to answer the first part, uh, when you ask uh, 
pot or do everybody should have a good lid hygiene of course absolutely it's going to be like your it's 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 part of the eye it's part of your face so while you wash your face you have to make sure that you are washing the lids also so please make sure that you use a uh, not a very harsh chemical but a rather a mild soap should be sufficient to have a gentle wash of of the lids and the lashes that should be enough for for everyday care of of your lids when you wash your eyelids do you massage and do you massage the eyelids uh you don't have to massage if you don't have any problems okay. uh, i would i would really recommend massaging if you're going to have this this dryness okay uh if you don't have dryness if you're happy with everything out there i uh, you know you can always just have a, like a gentle clean your eyes just uh, just wash it with with warm water because the warm water itself is going to kind of melt the clogged up uh, oil if it if it's going to be there mm-hmm. uh but if you're going to have some symptoms of dryness such as grittiness or any foreign body sensation or your eyes are always kind of dry red uh you wake up in the morning and you find yourself very difficult to open up the eyes kind of like a sticky eyes they can indicate some sort of problems it could be either dry eyes or it can be some sort of mild infections there so what i would recommend in these conditions when you have this dryness uh please make sure that you you wash the eyes and also make sure that while you're taking a shower let that hot water get into the eyes uh, i mean not into or on the eyes let that heat kind of melt this clogged up oil you can use your pinky to kind of give a massage like this a gentle massage so that you're expressing out the clogged up oil for the upper lid like this for the lower lid like this from down to up so mm. you want to express out that that's going to be the simple straightforward uh way to to kind of help your your oil gets gets out but if you're going to have a lot of gunkiness or like a sticky discharge what we call like a, like a pus kind of collected early in the morning and that could indicate infection mm-hmm. and that again requires a good lid hygiene that's one thing second thing sometimes you may have a mild infection in the eye and that might require a consultation with your with your eye care provider could be an optometrist or optician that's fine um so they might give you an antibiotic ointment uh, or an antibiotic drops to help you with that what about tea tree oils that kind of stuff yeah. essential oils do they have a part in this the tea tree oil interestingly can be used in this meibomian gland uh, problem uh, when i said you have a problem with because of this uh, the oil not getting secreted well a uh, lot of lot of patients have this meibomian gland disease uh, in fact the most common cause of dryness worldwide is going to be the meibomian gland dysfunction or a disease and and you have a specific uh, mite uh, a mite is going to be something is going to be like a a tiny bug like thing and uh, it is it it is there on our face i've seen a picture of them and yeah. i have to say they're scary <laughs> like when i was <laughs> i don't know we might show it <laughs> yeah but yeah. just for a split second <laughs> yeah uh, that looks scary actually so what that mite can do is they can kind of go into the lids they can kind of bury small holes in the lid margins and they can go there and they can cause inflammation there So for that mite it is called as a demodex that's the name of the mite. Yeah. So that can cause some inflammations there and that can cause severe problem. So tea tree oil are proven uh to be effective in 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 eliminating this kind of a mite. Uh so back in India we don't have this tea tree oil. So what we advise is we advise patients to use a combination of uh, coconut oil mm-hmm. and neem oil. So that's going to be a combination which is which is much economical than tea tree oil tea tree yeah. oil is is quite enough very costly back in india um so there that's what we advise we ask the patients to kind of apply that on their mustache apply, uh, apply that on their on their lashes not into the eyes but 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 just on that so that the the mites usually migrate from here to the lids so we kind of try to eliminate that so once we apply that the combination of tea uh, the coconut oil neem oil we ask the patient to wash their face with the neem soap that's the way we go about yeah. here in uk what we do is we advise patients to use this tea tree uh, oil wipes which are freely available like a uh, kind of very widely available from amazon and elsewhere so patients can kind of kind of wipe off the lids with that wipes yeah mhm this is so interesting so i've also got a point here about mascara how can mascara play a role in dry eyes <laughs> so i'm going to make a controversial statement but yeah uh, you can wear mascaras but but you have to bit kind of careful uh with 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 anything being applied on the eye it can be mascaras it can be these false eyelashes uh or or any sort of cosmetics you want to apply there you have to be very careful because the eyes uh, uh, uh the lids especially are going to have a something called a lid margin which is at this area just at that uh 
place. So that's where the, the oil glands are gonna come and pop out and you need that place to be clean enough for the oil to come out. You can apply mascara at this part, but if you're gonna apply on the lid margin, what happens, it kind of blocks the oil glands and it prevents the oil to get secret really well. So because of the small inflammation developing there, sort of swells, uh, kind of a disease develops there, the uh, the glands kind of, kind of gets clogged up and you don't have any more oil coming out. Mm. So that leads to dry disease. So apply here, not on that. I don't want to give an instruction course on how to apply mascara. But <laughs> I'm, I'm, I've not done that before, so I'm not an expert. But I've seen patients having uh, problems with the uh, with the eyelids because they apply mascara way too closer on the lid match. So we talked about um, dry eyes. And I know a lot of people use eye drops, which you, you can get uh, from a pharmacy. Is there a certain way we we have to apply the eye drops? Is there some common mistakes that people do? And is there alternatives to eye drops? So we've talked about cleaning the eye, being um, different techniques for that, but yeah. yeah. Um, be dry eyes for, for, and for any disease for that matter involved in the eyes. Eye drops is gonna be one of the most commonly prescribed way of treating an eye disease. Um, so the opticians, the optometrists, or the ophthalmologists might prescribe you eye drops. Some drops have, might have to be taken for a long time. For example, a lubricant eye drop, simple drops which your optician or you can get from Boots as well, where you can put to just relieve the dryness. That's one way of, of giving drops. You have glaucoma medication, which has to be taken for a lifelong treatment. So using drops sometimes become a mandatory thing. And I would say the number one cause of treatment failure is not knowing to know how to use the eye drops. It's very difficult to put drops on your own. I've done that. I've, I failed miserably. I can't put a drop well for me. <laughs> Uh, people have coming with, with different techniques and different ways of applying eye drops. Best thing is, please have someone to put the drops for you. The way we do is that we kind of retract this lower lid and you can see that it creates a sort of pouch there. There's a space between the white part and the red part. That's called as the fornix. You need to put the drops into that fornix. That's one way, retracting it. Uh, another easier way, what, what I used to do is, uh, it's called a pouch technique. You, you kind of kind of pinch the skin of the lid and you just retract that kind of creates like a small pouch there and that you can put drops into that pouch it's much easier than this because this might have can uh, you know I mean the the drops can kind of flow away but this way what do you do is you create a pouch so that you create a secure place for the eye drops to fall so just put one drop one drop is enough you don't have to put many drops put one drop and gently release that and ask the patient to gently close the lids like as if they are sleeping not forceful closure, just gentle closure. Because forceful closure might cause the drops to kind of bleed away and kind of spill out. So gentle closure is important. Uh, and uh, if you want, if, if you don't want the drops to get into your mouth or into your systemic circulation, for example, some, sometimes doctors might give you some potential drops as a steroid eye drops, which you might have to take for the eyes, but you don't want that to get into the body. So what you can do is you just put the drops, gently close the eyes, and you can use your pinkies or your fingers just to kind of close this area. This is called a punctal occlusion or just occluding the part because uh, this is the place where the drops or the tears kind of drain to the nose. So you need to put this. Because I have seen patients, especially during during festival of, of uh, Ramadan, uh, the patients might be a bit be afraid to take eye drops because they think that might enter into the body. Uh, or sometimes they can get into the mouth as well, which might disrupt their fasting. So we advise patients, it's perfectly safe to take eye drops during that period. And if you want to be just to be sure, you can always use this punctal occlusion technique, uh, which kind of prevents the, the drops getting into the body or into the mouth, kind of stays within the eye. So it's like the, the hole in the tap that we have, for example, for the water to go down. Yeah. You basically block that. Exactly, exactly. Well put. Um, by the way, this is so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I love this practical stuff, the, the stuff, the everyday stuff that people use. Um, we talked about dry eyes, eye drops. Why do we cry? <laughs> we cry for lots of reasons. <laughs> and uh, I can classify into these two reasons why we cry. We cry because we want to cry, we're emotional, and that's something to do with the, with the brain impulses, sending the lacrimal glands, uh, which are these, these tear-producing glands which are here. They are like these uh, shower head. They kind of give the tears to us. So that's one reason why we cry, the emotion aspect. 
Second reason why we cry or why we shed tears is going to be what we call as a reflex secretion. Uh, we're just going to take a protective mechanism. Uh, for instance, you you go on a bike and you have a lot of dry air hitting on your eyes and we kind of tear automatically. It's called a reflex tearing. It's like a reflex mechanism or, or something gets into the eye, for example, a foreign body or a small piece of metal or an insect gets into the eye. Your, your eyes automatically starts to produce the tears mm. so that they, you want to eliminate that. Uh, interestingly, patients who are having severe dry eyes can also have this tearing. So dryness can cause more water to produce. So patients may not always have uh, this sort of dry eyes. They may have more of watery eyes. But that could indicate dryness as well. Okay. What about, uh, for example, I, whenever I wake up in the morning, for some reason, my eyes always tear up. Uh, I don't know. Is that because, what is the thing that we have in the morning? That, that we, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, all of us get that. Uh, what happens is when you're going to close the eyes, when you're going to sleep, uh, you, you kind of create, you don't really have much of oxygen from outside. Uh, it's just with the, with, with the lids taking care of the problems. Uh, kind of creating or kind of nourishing the eye while we sleep because you need oxygen from outside to, to enter into the eye for, mm. the, for the nourishment, for the oxygenation. What happens is when we don't have a good lid hygiene, you may have some sort of debris or kind of uh, a gunk getting collected in the eyes that can kind of collect at this end. But that is all right. It's not always something which has to be really be taken concerned of. What I would recommend is, again, uh, wash your face really well before you go to sleep. Remove the remove whatever you have applied, your mascara or, 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 or any of the cosmetics has to be removed. You can apply a bit of moisturizer if you want. Uh, if you have sort of dryness, you can always put an, uh, a lubricating eye drop at night and you can sleep. Some patients might, might be prescribed some sort of an antibiotic ointment because there could be some low-grade infection in the eyes. So you need to put the ointment, you have to sleep. Again, the ointment is going to be an important, if I can share about the, the way you use mm -hmm. the ointment. Uh, I've seen patients using ointments. They like, like a, they kind of put it on their fingers. They just apply. Just not to be done. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> uh, some patients just put the ointment on the eye. They kind of rub it. Again, that's not the right way. The same way as how we put an eye drop, retract it like this, or use the pouch technique. You once you do this, what happens? You create the same pouch there. You have the space. You squeeze the the tube of the eye ointment, and you just have a little rice grain amount of ointment should be sufficient. Do that, close it, you're done. Please don't use ointments in the mornings unless if it's really necessary or unless the doctor advises you to because putting ointment in the morning kind of creates a stickiness. So you mm. want to put an ointment at night, go for sleep. That should be the way to go. I've got another question on the eye drops. I heard about something about preservatives in eye drops and how that if you take them long term that can affect. Yeah. Is that true? And should we prefer eye drops which don't have preservatives? Although they may be a bit more costly, I think. Um, it depends, actually. Um, it depends on what type of preservative it's being used. There is a there is a preservative uh, called as a benzalkonium chloride or BAK. Uh, that particular preservative, in the long run, can cause a bit of problem on the cornea or the front part of the eye. Still, patients do use that. Uh, I have not seen patients having a lot of trouble with that BAK, but it's more of a commercial. Again, people try to market preservative-free uh, more commonly these days. There is no harm in using preservative-free. If you have an option, an opportunity to go with the preservative-free eye drops, by all means, please go for that. If cost is going to be a factor, especially if you're going to use drops for a very long time, then we may have to try to find a midway. There are these safe preservatives, uh, which kind of keeps the drops, uh, gives the longevity for the drops. And also, it also helps the eyes to not to be affected because of these harmful preservatives. Perfect. Um, I think that's... We've done a very good uh, analysis of all those points. I want to go into one very, very common problem, which is myopia. Mm. And I'll let you explain what it is. And then we can go into eyeglasses, contacts, and all that, the environment and how that affects myopia. And if we can actually, I'm giving you a lot of questions, I know. <laughs> I'm just giving you, yeah. And if the environment can actually reverse or... Um, stabilize. So like I said, a myopia is going to be one of the refractory errors which needs correction. So you can either wear glasses or contact lens or you can undergo this LASIK procedure. So it's part of the refractory error, what you call a short-sightedness. So myopia is also called a short-sightedness, which means that uh, what, what I said previously was 
this is going to be the eye and this is the back of the eye, the light should go and fall on the retina. What happens in myopia is that it falls in front of the retina, it doesn't fall on that. So you're giving these extra glasses to make the light fall on the retina, that's going to be the thing. So you have a myopia which means you may be given a minus prescription like a minus 4 or minus 5. So you can see that why does the light falls in front, the light can fall in front because of many reasons but one of the common reasons is when instead of a normal eyeball, the eyeball is going to be larger, a larger eyeball, what happens, the light falls in front. You have a larger eyeball which means you could have myopia. The risk with the larger eyeball is that uh, because of the large eyeballs, the retina kind of, kind of gets stretched a bit. Mm -hmm. right? It's like, it's like stretching the, the plastic sheet. You can stretch the plastic sheet, you can have, can have these small, small tears which can cause fluid to go back and cause a detachment of retina. So I would advise every patient, every everyone who has myopia to get an annual checkup done and also get a photo of your retina from the optician or from your optometrist. That would be brilliant because those tears can be asymptomatic, but they can cause these flashes and floaters. Uh, sometimes the patient can have a sudden loss of vision as well because of detachment of retina. Mm. So myopia above minus three, minus four, please get your eyes checked every year. Even if not, get your eyes checked every year, but get your uh, eyes photographed. What you call as a fundus photograph has to be taken. That's important. Now, we said that this myopia, so the large eyeball is there. But why does the eyeballs become large? That's, that's going to be the question to be answered. One thing, it can be hereditary, which we can't do anything about it. If, if my father is going to be myopic, I can be again myopic. And it kind of increases the risk when we have both mom and dad, both are myopic. Mm. But... Um, given the COVID, uh, because of COVID, what happened was we had we had one important pandemic called as myopia pandemic. And why that happened? Because kids used to read everything at near, very close. They watch movies, they watch their lectures. So everything was done within the confinement of, of the room and, and everything was done very near. So kids' eyeballs are growing. So imagine this is going to be the kid eyeball, which is the normal eyeball. And the light ray has been passing and getting onto the retina. Now, what happens was when 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 kids was uh, you know you know kids were looking at their devices very close. Now, naturally, when the object is kind of far away, it falls on the retina. If it comes really close, the uh, the light should fall behind the eye or behind the retina. That's how the natural physics works. Now, what happens because now the light ray is falling behind the retina or behind the eyeball, the brain thinks, oh no, I'm not good enough. I have to grow more. So from here, the eyeball tries to grow, 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 so that it can it tries to accommodate that uh, light ray which is going to get there. So now, what happens now? From here, the eyeball has grown. I have eyeballs have become larger to accommodate that light. So the myopia has developed because of a constant near vision. That's why your moms and dads ask you not to watch TVs really close because you're gonna watch things really close. The eyeball is gonna grow back to accommodate that light and you have myopia developing. And like I said, when eyeball is going to grow larger, it can cause stretching of the retina, can cause retinal tears, and it can cause detachment of retina, which you don't want to have. What about, I also heard that exposure to sunlight mm. uh, when you're a kid helps prevent mm. this as well. So spending time outside. Yeah, it does. Uh, myopia is an exciting area of research actually. Um, so what we advise is we advise the students or, or kids uh, when they come with this myopia, we ask them to follow this 20-20-20 rule, uh, which is what we commonly advise uh, the young professionals who are, who are glued to these screens to follow. 20-20-20 uh, rule essentially means that uh, for every 20 minutes, take a break for 20 seconds and see some objects which are 20 feet away. That is what it means. But, but essentially take frequent breaks from your system, take sufficient breaks and look at something far away. Because when you want to look far away, you are you are preventing uh, the progression of myopia, which is which is very much relevant for for young children. That's why we ask the kids to go outside and play. When they're going to play, they're going to look at something far away. So the more near you're going to look, that's going to increase the eyeballs to grow. But far away, it's going to stop the progression of myopia. And what's more interesting is we have found that the research suggests saying that there should be a sufficient amount of illumination illumination so a sufficient amount of lighting should be there to prevent this myopia so we always ask kids to go outside and play in the evening times we have found that playing in the evening really gives this very right atmosphere to prevent myopia progression 
That's so interesting. Does it have to... I also heard like reading in the dark. If you remember my mom telling me this when I was a kid. Don't read in the dark. Like always open the light and read. And I don't know. I just used to like it. That's why. A little light and read. She's like, no, open the lights. Yeah, that's true. Because reading in the dark, kind of one is that it's going to uh, cause a lot of strain or, or fatigueness to the eye. The eyes try to, again, uh, kind of tries really hard, tries to accommodate something just very near. So you can develop headaches, you can develop these fatigueness, which you don't want to have. And again, that can, again, can increase the risk of myopia as well. So having a good lighting is going to be essential to prevent the myopia progression. So again, yeah. What about, uh, I know this is a myth. Well, maybe it's not, you can tell me, but eating carrots. Does that improve eye vision because of some vitamin A? Yeah. And now, does nutrition play a role? Nutrition do play a role. Uh, vitamin A deficiency can lead to poor night vision. Ah. Uh, we have seen patients who have been severely deficient in vitamin A who, who cannot see well at night. So vitamin A is really important. And uh, eating carrots is a part of a healthy lifestyle. But I won't suggest eating carrots really improve the vision. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, take your normal vitamins and because vitamin A, B, C, everything is important. D, everything is important for your eye health actually. So taking a balanced diet would be my advice. And if you're not having a balanced diet, will the multivitamin help? For example, uh, the Western diet, which is a bit more, especially now that you're a student, you don't really <laughs> understand that. Uh, please do take multivitamins by all means if, if, if it's needed. Yeah. But but to be honest, nothing can replace a good balanced meal. Just fix your diet would be the yeah, number one. <laughs> that number one. And if you really can't do anything, then yeah, you can take your multivitamins. <laughs> Makes sense. So we talked about myopia. We talked about also what it is and what it entails. And then I want to talk about ways of correcting it. So we have our contact lenses and also our glasses. Could we talk about some benefits and some disadvantages of glasses and contacts and some um, things to be aware of, some common mistakes that people make? Yeah. Good. Great question, actually. Uh, I would say the best solution is to wear glasses. The safest, uh, most economical, but of course the least cosmetic uh, appearing uh, <laughs> ways to wear glasses. Um, but, but glasses do really help you to kind of uh, prevent all the problems which you may have because of wearing a contact lens. So I just want to talk about glasses because, because glasses is something people are very much afraid to wear. Uh, because the parents might think wearing glasses might, might make their eyes to stay there and you have to wear glasses permanently for lifelong. But wearing glasses is very important to correct the refractory errors. So like I mentioned at the very beginning of this, of this talk, when you, when you don't correct the errors at a very early age, then that might lead to lazy eye, which you don't want. So wearing glasses is going to be important. The only problem what you might have is sometimes you wear very heavy glasses and that might cause some impressions on, at this part of nose. But these days we have some good glasses which will have a good cosmetic appearance. Now speaking of the alternative, the more preferred, the more favored way of correcting the refractory error is going to be use of contact lens. Uh, we have people using contact lens you know, everywhere uh, because back in India, we don't have much patients wearing contact lens. I usually have uh, maybe 20 to 30 years wearing contacts. But here I'm seeing everybody wearing contact lens. Uh, it's great. I mean, contact lens, when worn in the right way, it's totally safe. That's why people all love to use contact lens. But there are some certain things which you have to keep in mind. Uh, I would always say there are three S which you should wear, which you, which you should not do when you wear a contact lens. Number one, you should never sleep with contact lens on. Number two, you should never shower with contact lens on. Number three, you should never swim with contact lens on. You're going to sleep, shower, and swim with contact lens on. You're going to attract diseases to the eye because of the contact lens. Uh, for instance, you're going to go for a swimming with contact lens on. You can have whatever germs and bacteria in the swimming pool uh, or in the contaminated water sticking onto the contact lens. That can kind of create a very nice fertile soil for the organism to kind of flourish and grow. So you're going to wear an extended wear contact lens. Again, that gives you a risk for having more infections. The number one cause of having a, a corneal ulcer is going to be wearing contact lens and not using the right ways to wear contact lens. So apart from these sleep, swim and shower, there is one more S that is going to be using the uh, solutions. I've seen some patients using this homemade saline using to clean the contact lens. That is again hazardous for your eyes. So use the uh, appropriately prescribed solutions to store and to clean the eyes. What is having the contact lens make it make you more prone 
to getting infection? Mm -hmm. Is it because it breaks, because we talked about this before, is it because it breaks a tear, the tear film layer? Is that yeah. why? Yeah. Um, wearing contact lens, you mean, you wear contact lens on the cornea. So cornea is going to be the front part of the image, which we just, just discussed. So you're going to place a contact lens on that. When you place a contact lens on the cornea, you're going to impair the oxygen supply from outside. Mm -hmm. Of course, you have nourishment from the inside of the eye as well, but you need some oxygen from the outside as well. So wearing contact lens kind of deprives you of the cornea to some extent, not to a great extent. That's why not all of us have problems. But the problem happens when you're going to sleep with contact lens on. You're going to deprive even more oxygen. Mm. So you don't want to sleep with contact lens on for that reason. So contact lens is going to create by itself a sort of a very discomfortable, kind of a very uncomfortable situation for, for the corneas. Again, it depends upon how long you're going to wear that. You're going to just wear it for one evening. That's fine. But you're going to have an extended wear. Uh, or you have a very misfit or an ill-fit contact lens. And those things can, can kind of cause more harm than good. I've heard about these contact lenses which you wear during the night and they change the shape yeah. of the cornea. Yeah, that's really important because uh, they're called as a therapeutic contact lenses because those are contact lenses which are given to treat a disease actually, then correcting the errors. For example, someone is going to have a, a very differently shaped corneas, what it calls a keratoconus. Hmm. So instead of a normal shaped cornea, they have like a more of a conical cornea. So we have to place a lens, which is like a rigid lens, which kind of flattens the cornea. So that lens has to be worn at night. So unless your doctor says, wear this at night, please don't wear this at night. Okay. That's going to be the thing. Makes sense. Lovely. So do you want to touch a bit about on LASIK surgery? Say a few stuff about that. Sure. Uh, LASIK has, has come a long way. Uh, it's, it's quite safe, mm -hmm. quite tolerable. Uh, the only problem could be the cost might might be the deterring factor. But but these days, patients really would love to get their uh, LASIK done because that prevents you from wearing contact lens, that prevents you from wearing glasses also. The problem with LASIK is that sometimes uh, if LASIK is not done in the right way or sometimes you can't correct the entire correction, you can't prevent the entire error, you may have to have a residual error there so you may have to wear glasses even after LASIK. That's going to be one negative thing. Second is that doing a LASIK, which essentially means that there's going to be the cornea, right? Uh, this is the front part, the back part. Uh, the LASIK means you're going to give laser, you're going to ablate, or you're going to cause a bit of a flap on the cornea, and you have to give some kind of radiations and try to flatten up or try to steepen the cornea. It depends upon what you want to correct. So you're going to alter the shape of the cornea a bit, to be honest. Uh, then you replace the flap if you want. Uh, the one that does is that's going to create some kind of a permanent structural alterations. I won't call, I won't use the term called damage, but you kind of alter the structure which is needed to correct that error, right? But what happens in that time, you may cause a disturbance of the tear film just on the natural cornea. And that might make you more be prone for dryness. Mm -hmm. So dryness, dry is something which I've seen in patients who have underwent LASIK. And it's going to be a lifelong problem. So unless you really want LASIK, I, I, would, I would recommend to go for glasses as the best. Second, go for contact lens and, 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 and do that properly. Yeah. Even if you're happy with the contact lens or the glasses, and you, then you can go for LASIK. I know the ophthalmologists are, are, are going to hate me for saying this <laughs> because contact lens is going to be one of the very important uh, economically or, or marketable solutions. But it's, it's purely cosmetic. And unless you need it, you don't have yeah, and for the laser eye surgery, uh, aka LASIK, when people when people have myopia, that has to stabilize for them to do it. Yeah, true. So, so younger people in their 18 years old to 25, I'm guessing, where it's still developing, mm -hmm. um, how long do, does your does the myopia have to stabilize? How many years, and then you say, okay, now we can consider it. Yeah. So we have this eyeball is growing for a long time, and I would usually we'll say 22, 23 years is going to be like the cutoff. For, for LASIK. So we don't advise LASIK before that time period because mm -hmm. eyeball is still growing. So you don't want to do LASIK at that time and your eyeball is still growing, which might not really work. It, it, it might be like worth doing that LASIK in the first place. So be it myopia or, or any refractory errors, uh, you need to let the eyeball stabilize, stop growing. That would be 22, 23 years of age. Yeah. And then we can first always start with glasses then go for contact lens. And if yeah. that doesn't, if those two are not going to be your cup of tea, then you can go to the last. <laughs> Got it. So we're back after our tea break. Um, and my first question is the following. Uh, 
a lot of people uh, get stuff stuck in their eye or they have eye trauma uh, with their eye and they try to remove it. What's a simple way? I know it's complicated. This is tra eye trauma is a complicated uh, thing. We're not going to dive into it too much. But what is the simple way to wash uh, the surface of the eye if we get something in it, in our eye? Yeah, Great question, actually. Uh, first, it depends upon what is getting into the eye. So you can either have a, a solid getting into the eye or you can have a liquid. I just want to give a basic explanation. It's just going to be a solid that might require to be removed. So the solid might not always uh, get washed away when you apply water. It kind of sticks to. So that's when, when you have to consult an ophthalmologist. Respective of what? When you have something getting into the eye, please consult the optician or optometrist or the, op or the ophthalmologist. Because uh, you can't remove the problem from, from, from a naked eye or without any aid. You need to use a, a special machine called as the slit lamp. Uh, the image can be showed uh, this time. So that slit lamp is a brilliant tool and, and uh, the doctors and eye care providers use that. That really magnifies the eye and it makes it a lot more easier for us to pick up those very small foreign bodies, uh, you know, which, which gets into the eye. Now that's with the solid aspect. The second is when, when a liquid goes inside. Again, you should see what is getting into. Is it going to be uh, an acid or is it going to be an alkali? When I mean alkali, it can be like a lime. Uh, you, would, you would think acids are much more destructive because acids means kind of scary word, yeah. right? <laughs> but, to, uh, you know, uh, to be honest, alkalis are much more destructive than the acids. Mm. Especially lime. You should never ever want the lime particles to get into the eye. Like they, when you're squeezing lemon and it just goes in your eye. Uh, when I mean not that lime, it's going to be the lime. What I mean is the, the calcium carbonate lime. Oh. The, the thing what you apply on the, on the floors or on the walls. Yeah. yeah. Mm, in India, they call us chuna. Uh, I'm not sure what, what's called here. But, <laughs> yeah. but limestone, I would say. Limestone, yeah. yeah. Uh, not, not, not the lemon lime. Okay. <laughs> they don't do anything, actually. <laughs> I think they're just, uh, they are acid and kind of like uh, stings, but, but that's not the thing. But what I mean is these uh, occupational hazards, when accidental exposure of these limestone particles, they kind of stay there and they kind of keep on releasing alkali. They can cause destruction of the eye. That, that's very serious. So that's why I'm saying, you have something in the eye, you can wash it, wash with a clean water, uh, kind of open the eyes and kind of throw water inside, there is no harm. But please consult an eye doctor, please consult an eye professional, that's very important. And please don't rub the eyes. I know you may have the tendency to rub, but rubbing can kind of cause more problem. Mm. Uh, they can kind of more, for example, you have, a, <clears throat> you have some foreign bodies, you have some metal pieces on the eye. You're going to rub like this, you're going to make more scratches. You want to cause even more abrasions on the cornea. It's like a window and you like yeah, yeah, scrape it. Scraping, yeah. Uh, especially sometimes the, the foreign bodies or these metal particles can be lodged at the back of the lid. Uh, so it's like here you have the cornea, here, the, uh, here you have the cornea, there's a lid. So you have a problem at the back of the lid. So as you close and open the lids, it's going to paint the clear cornea with abrasions, with scratches. Mm. So you want to remove that. So for this, and for anything else, you have to get the eyes checked on a proper machine called as a slit lamp. What about washing your, opening your eye in a cup of, uh, I don't know, like a bottle of water? Mm -hmm. This is how I used to do it. Put the bottle of water, the cap, in your, and then open and close your eye in the water. Does That's that make okay. Sense? That, yeah, it makes sense. But I would recommend to kind of splash because that is going to remove that. If, again, depends upon what type of uh, particle oh, has got yes. into Tiny one, yes, you can just kind of open and close. But sometimes when, when, when things are going to get stuck there, you might have to give a bit of a pressure to release that, to kind of remove that. Somebody once asked me something, and uh, I think it's a good question to address. might be a simple one, but can the contact lens or any type of foreign object go into the back of your brain? It can. Uh, no, not in the back. Yeah, no. <laughs> not in the back of the brain, but it can go to other parts. For example, if I can show you this. Um, now this is the eye, right? And you can have you wear the contact lens on this part, on this clear part. Sometimes what happens when patients forget to take the contact lens off, they can get migrated to the white part of the eye. They can go behind the lid as well. And that's when patients forget that they have removed their contact lens. They think that it might have fallen down, but it still stays the same. It, st it still stays in the eye. Not yeah. on the cornea, but some other areas. And that can again cause this sort of a acute red eye, redness, pain, irritation. Patient comes to us with sort of severe red eye. 
and uh, the first question we ask is do you wear contact lens the patient says yes uh, okay uh, have you removed the contact lens the patient says i think it has fallen down i'm not sure then we stain the eye we search for the thing and we find a contact lens hidden somewhere we yeah. remove that so it's always important uh, to know that contact lens can migrate yeah but it can't go to the back like no. it can't go like back no, it, no. It, there's a margin here exactly where it can it's like a pouch exactly okay. uh, so it uh, you have the lid there so it can either go to the white part it can never go back to the brain or the optic nerve because you have a good good shell covering this so it can go on the white or it can go between the white and the lids mm -hmm. or on the lid Why do people have different colors of eyes? <laughs> uh, some of them are beautiful, some of them are boring like mine. <laughs> and uh, does that mean that they are more sensitive to bright light? Um, actually, the iris is going to be the colored part of the eye mm -hmm. and, and uh, uh, the rays from where we belong to kind of uh, influences the color of the eye. Uh, we can see people who are who are from from northern hemisphere they have more of like a, a light colored irises blue or gray very beautiful colors actually uh, <laughs> what that indicates is that we all have this pigment called melanin mm -hmm. when you don't have much of melanin in the iris and you can have this light colored irises uh asians and and, and you also have yeah. a bit of a light brown iris a brown indicates you have more of melanin there uh, so it doesn't really have to do much with with the sensitivity but there are conditions such as albinism where patients don't have any melanin at all which means their irises would be very light and they have a lot of uh, defects a lot of holes within the irises they'll be very having a lot of glare and they have a lot of sensitivity towards light mm. and now let's move behind the iris which is the colored uh, part to the lens so what is the lens and what can go wrong with the lens yeah. uh lens is is probably the most important part uh not just for the patient but also for the doctors for the ophthalmologists because when we don't have lens we lose a very important uh what to say financially viable uh treatment what we call as cataracts mm. because every one of us get cataracts it's it's going to be like a graying of the hair the lenses become gray the lenses become cloudy from from a clear window Uh, from from a from a clear structure into something like a boiled egg yeah you know? so it's like when you boil an egg the egg turns white uh, that's how it 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 looks like so like i said uh, from from a clear structure which means light can pass through the clear structure if it's going to be like a boiled hard boiled egg light cannot pass through that so that's when you have to remove that lens you have to replace with an artificial lens So cataract is going to be the most common cause of blindness worldwide. Mm -hmm. Uh cataract surgery is again the most commonly performed surgery in the NHS as a whole. Yeah. So that's why cataract is is, is so uh, universal and the surgeries are are kind of very commonly performed. The interesting thing is that it just takes 20 minutes to 30 minutes to remove the cataract and replace that with an artificial lens. So it's a quick and efficient surgery. on day 1 you get excellent visual uh, visual outcomes for the patient yeah and with cataract surgery it's one of the i've heard it's i've heard it's the most successful surgery that we perform and then after that is total knee replacements and total hip replacements <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah it's important for patients to know because i know there's a lot of uh, of people that are afraid of um cataract surgery mm. is there any way of preventing cataracts or um slowing down the progress i heard about not if you the sunlight if you we look directly in the sun for like long periods of time that can damage the lens mm. and bring cataracts at an earlier age cataracts usually come about i think what so age 60 50 60 50 and yeah. that could um yeah exacerbate it yeah yeah so what's your opinion on that um at at present there is no way to prevent cataract Uh, yeah. the age related cataract what i'm talking about uh, surgery is the only treatment for cataracts mm. if if i'm going to develop a, an eye drop which is going to dissolve cataract just putting drops dissolves cataracts i'll get the nobel prize <laughs> the next nobel prize winner yeah. uh, people are working towards that hopefully sometime later we can have an answer for that but right now surgeries are going to be the only answer to answer your question uh, can we prevent cataracts it depends on on what's causing the cataract if it's going to be an age related process Uh, it might be it might take a while i see more of cataracts back in india because 
we have a hot climate yeah the temperature that like you said the uv radiations can kind of uh, alter the metabolism or or the functioning of the lens so kind of prevents it from being clear so it kind of causes the lens to become opaque or cloudy what do you call a cataract that's one reason why why we see so many cataracts white cataracts in in asia and in african countries but age is not always a reason why you can have cataract you can have some other reasons why you can have cataract one common reason is having diabetes having high blood sugars can kind of again cause this diabetic cataracts or it can cause an accelerated cataract where you can have cataracts at a very earlier age of uh, you know at maybe like say after 40 or 45 mm-hmm. 50 you can have cataracts because of the sugars because of the diabetes second reason is usage of steroids you're going to consume steroids uh, and an oral steroid you can have long standing oral steroid treatment that can again can cause cataracts or steroid injections into the eye which are medically uh, you know proven or or steroids can always cause a side effect of having cataracts as well the uv radiation cause that you mentioned if we have glasses that prevent uv the normal sunglasses yeah, that people yeah. wear mm-hmm. will that help that will help actually uh, we don't have really studies to prove that wearing a sunglass prevents cataract but wearing a sunglass prevents lots of other problems wearing a sunglass really prevents the the uv rays entering inside and causing that can even cause damage to, to the retina as well or the back of the eye as well so kind of it and it also prevents the dryness also so wearing a a sunglass really helps you in so many ways especially in countries which have a lot of uh, sun exactly it's just cyprus exactly. as well yeah <laughs> and What about let's go I think into diabetic retinopathy which I think it's going to be the last uh condition we're going to explore why um why is it important for people with diabetes to take care of their eyes and what should they be aware of um yeah great question because diabetes is so common these days and we have uh, type 1 and type 2 diabetes type 1 is an unfortunate incident where patients don't secrete much of insulin from their pancreas so we can't really prevent type 1 we have to identify and treat it and control them as early as possible so we have a lot of young patients have type 1 diabetes but type 2 diabetes is something which is much more prevalent uh, because of our lifestyle a sedentary lifestyle and intake of more calories more sugars Uh, which makes us to become insulin resistant so now what happens is that insulin doesn't go into the body and and there's going to be more of sugars the sugars are going to stay within the blood not going to the organ or not going to the muscle or the tissue which needs the uh, glucose or the oxygen so what happens like i said uh, you have the retina which is the the innermost coat innermost part of the eye and that's going to be like a screen so imagine this is going to be the screen and the light is going to go and fall on the screen the screen is called the retina you have these blood vessels on the screen as well now what happens these blood vessels they're going to be filled with this sugary blood or this very thick solidified honey filled blood so what happens now that blood is not going to supply the retina properly so retina kind of suffers from malnutrition or what we call as a lack of uh, food lack mm. of oxygen called as ischemia now that's the problem now when you have a problem with the blood vessel when it's called clogged up it kind of damages the blood vessels kind of throws out bl- blood everywhere so you're going to have bleeding bleeding within the retina sometimes what happens is that you can have uh, the ischemia or the lack of blood supply or oxygen can kind of cause proliferation or growth of new vessels we might think the new vessels are really good but in fact they they make things much worse for us those new vessels kind of bleed a lot they kind of bleed to the front of the retina they kind of fill the eye with blood that can cause a sudden onset loss of vision for patients so my advice would be uh, identifying diabetes is very important and controlling is going to be the key because unless diabetes is controlled really well no matter what we do with the treatment of the diabetic retinopathy we can we can control diabetic retinopathy really well we need mm-hmm. to treat the diabetes first i think that's a very very good explanation and it's important um to take care of chronic conditions because so many people suffer from chronic conditions and if we don't we, we can't take we can't take care of chronic conditions for people themselves they have to take care of them <laughs> themselves they have to be the ones that initiate this um yeah so hopefully this inspires also people to 
take care of <laughs> their, uh, their diabetes. I have one simple question, and then we'll proceed to the teaching set section. Are Blu-ray glasses a myth? <laughs> um, it's kind of a controversial thing, actually. We don't really have a solid evidence to say that Blu-ray glasses uh, prevents uh, problems, actually. But Blu-ray glasses, what they do is they're like these blue light filter. So you don't want, uh, you're, you're, you're trying to filter out the blue rays from the screen uh, entering into the eyes. So why people wear blue rays is because they think uh, the UV light can cause some sort of harm. The blue light causes some sort of harm to the retina. Yeah. But, but we don't have enough evidence to prove that. But having said that, uh, the blue light glasses really uh, helps you to, to kind of uh, have a good sleep in the sense the UV light, uh, the UV light is going to get into the eye and it is going to uh, disrupt a chemical called as melatonin, which is essential for us to sleep really well. Yeah. Uh, now, what happens when you're going to uh, wear a blue light filter glasses that kind of filters the blue light and, and, and that really helps you to uh, sleep well because it kind of helps melatonin to stay intact. So what I mean is... You watch, a, you watch a screen, the screen can have this blue light getting to the eyes and that can disrupt the sleep-wake cycle by disrupting the mm. melatonin, especially at night time, when you're watching screens at night. So you wear a blue red filter glass that kind of prevents the blue red entering inside and that kind of keeps the melatonin intact. So it's like as if you want to sleep. So you are, you're still maintaining that sleep-wake cycle. I know that screens have like a blue filter as exactly, well. Exactly, exactly. Is that the same thing? The same thing. So, so instead you... of, yeah. So, so instead of you wearing a blue filter glass, the, the, the screen is going to facilitate that. So this, the screen has this auto tone. We have this true tone for, for your iPhones, phones, iPhones. And you can also install blue light filters. Uh, we got a lot of ones for Android as well. And they kind of gives a very warm tone, like a sepia-like tone, yeah. which kind of gives a good feeling. But uh, I've used uh, that filters both on the screen and as for me as well. And I found that really helpful. Following this, this is something that interests me a lot. Sorry. What about... Uh, white light and yellow light at, at night. Is it better to have yellow light or? I would think, I would say yellow light works well. Yellow light works yellow light. better. Yeah, yeah. It, it helps. It, it's the same concept. Same concept. It doesn't, uh, yeah, yellow light kind of gives a much more softer, much more warmer tone. And it, the white light do have a bit of this blue light actually. Uh, so for for your night time, I mean, in the daytime, it doesn't matter. Daytime, yeah. you, any, any light is fine. <laughs> but, but at night, uh, using a yellow yellow light kind of yeah. uh, helps you uh, to sleep well. Yeah. But but we don't really have a solid evidence to back up these facts. But uh, I've seen patients who who, do, who does these things and they have found it really helped. Okay, sounds good. So it might even be placebo, but even then... Yeah, even then, no harm in doing <laughs> no that. No harm in no doing harm. it. 